Dear Sustainable Futures enthusiasts, my name is Alexandra Kutsukos and this is Sustainable Futures, the podcast, a live work platform to string conversations at the crossover between sustainability, design and personal experiences. Done with heart by live workers for live workers. In today's episode, I'll have a conversation with a guest familiar to many live workers. We'll talk about the common roots between climate change and racism, exploring the systems that describe and reinforce these mechanisms. Hi, Luke. Hello. Today, at our podcast episode, we have as our guest Luke Roberts. Many at LiveWork already know Luke because he's been helping us with our conflict resolution through workshops and lectures. Uh, do you maybe want to introduce yourself? Sure, Alexandra. So I'm Dr. Luke Roberts. I have a background in conflict resolution, as you've just said, for about 20 years. Um, but I also completed my PhD a couple of years ago, looking at complex systems and how do we sustain innovation in organisations and communities. Super cool. So what we want to talk about today is inspired by the book by Amitav Ghosh. I, I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. And basically, uh, the book argues that the dynamics of climate change are rooted in geopolitical orders constructed by colonialism. And this is the same root that causes racism, obviously. So there is a very strong connection uh, between climate change and racism. And uh, in the book, let's say it, the, the, the nutmeg uh, is taken as a, as a sort of like parable of how uh, human history has always been uh, related to natural, you know, materials, to materials of the earth. So uh, something that I would love to explore with you is what is your understanding and how is your experience around how climate change and racism originate from the same Oh, there's a question, Alexander. <laughs> <laughs> Going straight to the point. <laughs> um, I think, so, if we think about it from this perspective, that there's the exploitation of resources. And so, whether that's human resources or natural resources, colonialism had to have a way of extracting those resources and to do that, you have to also dehumanize the people who are presently in control or claim to have ownership of those resources. So the mythology around colonialism was to say that these are uncivilized people. These are people that you know aren't as sophisticated as us. So they therefore they're not able to have the ability to genuinely control their resources. So firstly, we put them in an infantile state. You know, they're too childish to understand. And then you can build other narratives around that as well, because they're infantile, they're less sophisticated, they're less cultured. So therefore, it becomes easier to create higher levels of harm towards people. And so I think the, the combination of both kind of the exploitation of natural resources and human resources throughout history, through colonialism, shows that how to how 
intertwined the two are because even now you know you have the exploitation of natural resources yeah. in africa for example and these are some of the lowest paid people um collecting kind of resources for mobile phones for jewelry um that exploitation of the land by those people who don't profit in any way um or they profit at such a marginal rate to just exist rather than live is one of the legacies of this combination of both the exploitation of natural and human resources mm -hmm. yeah so it, it's the same mindset at the end of the day that there's a underlying western culture uh, that is deeply rooted in, in, in us, that is that of extractivism. You know, like the fact that you can exploit resources, that earth is infinite and that extracting, you know, without giving back and without considering living forms that, we, that mythologically are outside of us, as you, as you said, it's okay, which is not. And this, as you mentioned, also also projected onto cultures and people that had a different yeah even look from us which is yeah it's it's a very superficial way of looking at things if you ask me it is and i think there's so there was a, a book by the club of rome which is called the limits of growth and they took a systems thinking approach and i think this is where you start to see a kind of a mental shift if you like from that mm -hmm. mechanistic worldview towards a systems worldview. So if you take somewhere like the Amazon, you know, mm. when people first arrived, it must have looked like it was a resource that could go on forever. But two things happen at the same time. So firstly, the exploitation of the Amazon itself starts to have its own limits in terms of how much can we destroy before it hits a tipping point where mm. it will then, you'll lose the biodiversity. But also for those people who are the indigenous population, the tribal population, their cultures have been absolutely wiped out. And so the, the, the paradox is they have to use the legal systems that have potentially enabled those people to exploit their land mm. to then defend themselves against it, which means mm. you have to adapt to a new system that mm. has already put you in a, a position of weakness through lack of knowledge about itself and its history as well. So there is this constant challenge when we think about this idea of discrimination and subjugation is that often those people who have the power to exploit through that mechanistic mindset then mm. also have system dominance in other places such as the legal and the political so it amplifies itself in mm. the system yeah something that i was thinking about when well maybe it's a bit of a tangent or still reflecting on on the different nature between how uh western uh white cultures deal with this very linear cause and effect you know like the whole principle of capitalism that is a bit like i take resources i make it into something and that gives me some some sort of profit and instead like the 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 way indigenous cultures have this more systemic you know way of looking at yeah benefits you know like a more distributed uh, view also not for populations now not for nature now but also for the future so we kind of like lost the forward looking yeah absolutely and i think that's where kind of like the issue of capitalism exploitation and profit is all about success in the now so mm. we, when you look at companies that are amassing uh, huge amounts of wealth well what does that wealth mean in 10 50 20 
you know, a hundred years time kind of thing. So yes, the company may survive, but what's the environment that it has to survive in? And I think going linking that back to the idea of this interplay between racism and climate change, one of the things that's clearly going to happen is that the people who are least likely to contribute to climate change are the ones that are going to suffer the most. Mm. And so then you get this kind of um, issue where not only are the people of colour in the, you know it's like small island states already you know asking for money to create climate defenses and not getting it by rich nations but also what will happen is as those countries have become unlivable in the future you will then get this consequence of immigration mm-hmm. and so richer nation states will then be racist towards you know climate um migrants because they don't want them there unless they can exploit them in some way again. So it's it feels very, how can I put it, grubby and insidious, the way in which the system is behaving at the moment. But this interplay with race and climate change is linked to colonialism. Mm. And I, I think I'd go one step further, and there's a colonialism of the mind, if you mm. like, that if people tend to think that, you know, we can exploit concepts and exploit ideas just to further these mm-hmm. agendas it means you help perpetuate the climate crisis yeah i and wow yes i think you've explained it super super well and uh something that uh, you know also reflecting on our position as designers i feel like sometimes we reinforce that uh, type of like colonialist uh, colonialist mindset so for example when we when we do research we do I have the feeling very often that we do it in a very extractive way without necessarily like finding ways of doing participatory research in a way where you also participate and you're like, you put yourself on the line as well and you also give back. So, uh, you know, at the end you kind of like take this thing and you transform it into a thing that you sell back to them. (laughs) So to me still that like, uh, I don't know, it hurts me as designers, as creators, however you want to put it, we, have to be very mindful about how we reinforce this system or this paradigm or how we uh, we can break off of it. So this whole idea of being objective in research is, I think, is at this point outdated because like you either recognize all of the biases that us uh, as beholders of our own heritage you know have or don't pretend to be uh unbiased because you for sure are uh so as a person that puts things in the world if you don't acknowledge that lens that you look the world through then it's you reinforce the system yeah absolutely so i think again this goes back to well what's the paradigm you sit within so if you are sitting within a a positivist, which is I look for evidence and the world is objective um, paradigm and way of knowing, then you don't have to position yourself at all. And so that means that, you know, when you think about like medical trials, for example, or just trying to find cause and effect with, I don't know, a vaccine, for example. So why does the researcher need to recognise their own positionality in that type of research? Well, this is where then you get exactly your point discrimination against women against people of color because my position is you know as a researcher might be that of the white male Mm -hmm. and so therefore 
I am invisible to my own position within my research. And I think this is something that this objectivity is something that is really powerful in disguising power. And so whether you're a designer or for myself as someone who thinks in systems, I would argue that I am always in the system. And so I don't pretend that when I'm either working with clients or doing research that I am objective. I am now part of that system because I've chosen to interact and that system may try to engage me in various types of relationships. So I have to be incredibly mindful of both my positionality, but also the power that may mm. come with that positionality. So I think there is something about making that visible that becomes really important rather than going through the pretense that you're not and then being caught by surprise by either your own biases or the biases that are um, laden within the methodology you're using. I mm. think there's a second thing in there which really struck me, which was in my own research, I was constantly challenged um, to say, well, what are you going to give back to the communities that you've worked with? in your research so I'd like actually go back and go here's what I found about your locality and here's the insights I've got and then we can have a discussion about that so I think there is a real danger just like going right back to this thing about the exploitation of natural and human resources there's a real danger of the exploitation of consciousness and you know narrative mm -hmm. and so again it's about making sure that we don't fall in to these traps that are mm -hmm. there that then help perpetuate other forms of exploitation which then marginalize those people who are already experiencing um, hardship often those people of color are invisible and so therefore it becomes really hard to hear their voice in unless it's been you know translated through that of the designer of the researcher rather mm -hmm. than well what is it that they would want to know they would want to say and the outcomes they would like to see and how do we incorporate that into our design or into our thinking this is where you have to be careful around things like persona because mm. there is a power position in the persona service designers create yeah. and that can then be perpetuated can perpetuate the biases of the client of the community so let's not pretend that there isn't decisions being made um that you know you are always giving someone agency when you're mm. service designing the question is who is the more interesting one for me and who gets to benefit from that yeah yeah that's brilliant uh, thank you so much. It was a really nice conversation. There's so many more hints, you know, cues for more. So thank you so much. You too. Absolute pleasure.